Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. The goal of missions is the gladness of people in the greatness of God. So says John Piper in the introduction to his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He is, I believe, exactly right. The purpose of missions is to produce worshipers. We send missionaries into all the earth so they can lead people who don't know Jesus into a saving knowledge of Jesus so they will worship Jesus. It would be accurate to say that missions or that worship is the basis for missions. Our worship of God, it leads us to be a part of missionary endeavors. Now, this is true whether we're talking about sending missionaries like the Taurusans uh, to Uruguay or just us as the people of Northridge Free Will Baptist Church taking the gospel to the people of Ghana. Without our being passionate worshipers of God, we really have nothing to tell the nations. Without being passionate worshipers of God, we have no zeal to tell the nations. If we are not passionate in our pursuit and worship of God, why would anyone be interested in what we have to say about our God? Worship is the goal of missions, but worship is also the basis of missions. We will be lousy witnesses if we are not passionate worshipers. Today we're going to study a psalm that shows us how worship and witness are eternally intertwined. Open your Bible to Psalm 96. It's page 457 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 96 and 1. says, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord and bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among the people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindred of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall, be, shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For He cometh. He cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with His truth. The title of the message this morning is Declaring God's Glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning and we bow in Your presence and we surrender this hour, this time to You. Father, this is Your time and we want You to have Your way in every aspect of what's happened. Have Your way in what I say. Let Your Spirit guide me. Lord, that I would say exactly what You want said and exactly the way that You want it said. Let me not get in the way at all, Father, today in what You want done. But Father, we also want You to have Your way in our hearts as we hear the Word. Father, send Your Holy Spirit to guide us to have ears to hear and hearts that would receive this Word, take it into our life, and that it would produce good fruit that is visible to all the world around us. 
that Jesus is Lord and our God is glorious. And it's evident by the way that we declare Him with our mouths and we declare Him with our lives. Father, work in us today and change us. Make us into be the people that You want us to be. Help us, Father, to understand that what we do when we gather here, whether it's singing the songs of worship, whether it's worshiping You through the Word, that, Lord, it's not routine. It's not a box that we check and then go on. That, Lord, this matters. That this matters eternally and it would be important to us as Your people. Oh, Father, work today and have all of Your way in all of our lives, we ask in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now this psalm is a declaration of God's greatness and glory. In it, God is pictured as awesome and worthy of our worship. But not just our worship as the people of God. God is also worthy of the worship of all people everywhere. God is so worthy of the worship of all people everywhere that we, as the people of God, we devote ourselves to declaring His name and His glory and His salvation to all people of all nations for the express purpose of seeing them become worshipers of God who declare His greatness. The key thought that I want us to understand today is that my worship of God must lead to passionate witness about God. My worship of God must lead to passionate witness about God. We see this in this psalm. Sing unto the Lord. Sing unto the Lord. Sing unto the Lord. And then declare His glory among the nations. Our worship must give way to witness. And the idea of of declaring His glory, it is a passionate witness about the greatness and the goodness and the glory of Almighty God. Now to be a witness is simply to tell what we know to be true. If we are disciples of Jesus Christ, then we know that our God is great, our God is awesome, and our God is worthy of our praise and devotion. And since we know this is true, we tell people this is true. This is what it means to declare God's glory. This passage, it shows us four aspects of declaring God's glory. The first is declare God's salvation. Verse 1, he says, O sing unto the Lord a new song. O sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless His name. Now, three times in two verses we're told to sing unto the Lord. And we'll just hit this quickly. But the Lord is, is always in focus in our worship. We are to sing unto the Lord. Right? Our worship is always God-focused. God is the object of our worship. God should always be in focus as we sing whatever songs that we're singing in church. Right? Without God in focus, it's not really worship. Without God in focus, it's really more of a performance that we're doing rather than something that is meant to bring glory and honor to God. And after we, we sing unto the Lord and we sing these songs to Him, We are then to show forth His salvation from day to day. That is one of the primary ways we declare God's glory is to proclaim the good news of His salvation that is available to all people through Jesus Christ. Now the good news of God's salvation, it can be declared, I think, in in two ways. One is that we declare God's universal salvation. And what I mean by universal salvation is just the gospel in general. Every disciple of Jesus 
should be able to clearly and faithfully explain the gospel to someone. We should be able, if someone said, how can I be saved? Why does Jesus matter? What is the the number one message that I need to know in life? We should all be able to say, here it is. And we should clearly and faithfully explain the gospel. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into a lengthy explanation of how to clearly and faithfully share the gospel. But let me just quickly give you one passage and four components of a clear and faithful gospel presentation. At the end of his life, after his resurrection, at the end of his earthly life, after his resurrection, before he ascended, Jesus said, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Right, that, is, that is a great passage that sums up a lot about the gospel message. And there are four elements of a faithful, clear gospel message in this passage. Number one is that Jesus is the message. Right, It behooved Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name. The gospel centers on Jesus. Right? The, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection. If we do not declare Jesus, we have not shared the gospel. No matter what else we share. If we do not share Jesus, we do not share the gospel. Jesus is the message. Secondly, sin must be addressed. Right, that repentance and remission of, of sins. Now, this is a part that we often don't want to cover. Because we're afraid that someone will be offended. They'll get their feelings hurt or they won't like what we have to say. But we cannot faithfully explain the life and death and resurrection of Jesus without addressing sin. I mean, why did Jesus die? Because of sin. Why do I need Jesus? Why do I need my sins forgiven? Because there is sin in my life. A part of explaining the gospel and a part of even sharing Jesus is sharing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of these sins, it is death. If we do not Address sin. We do not share the gospel. If all we tell people is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We do not share the gospel. If all we tell people is come to Jesus for an abundant life. We do not share the gospel. We must share that there is sin in our lives. That Jesus went to the cross for our sins. Those sins must be forgiven. And they can only be forgiven through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the message. Sin must be addressed. And repentance is required. That repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name. Now repentance is simply a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. But really, repentance is just recognizing that that what we thought about sin was wrong. And that since we were wrong and God was right, that we're going to turn to God and turn away from our sin. Again, this is a a key aspect of the gospel. The gospel is not God will forgive forgive you of your sin and then leave you in your sin. 
It's not a gospel of God tolerating your sin. It's not a gospel of God accepting your sin through Jesus Christ. It is a gospel of God forgiving your sin, conquering your sin, freeing you from your sin. And if we do not urge people to turn from their sin and turn to God, we have failed them. We have not preached the gospel. We have left them. It is a gospel of accommodation. It is a damning heresy when we tell people they can stay the way they are. When Jesus was brought a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. He said, you without sin cast the first stone. Remember the story? And they all went away from the oldest to the youngest because they all knew that they had sinned. When he asked the woman, he said, where are thine accusers? She said, none, Lord. He said, well, neither do I accuse thee. Go and live your mutually pleasing adult oriented life. No. He said, go and sin no more. And if we do not tell people that repentance is required, that they must turn to God, and that requires turning from their sin, we have not faithfully declared the gospel. And then finally, the gospel is good news. Repentance and remission of sins, that our sins can be forgiven. I think honestly, the gospel is good news is two ways for us. One, when we talk to people, it's important that we share it as the good news. Yes, you have sinned. But that sin can be conquered and taken away. You can be freed from that for whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So we must know that that's that way. But we also, we have to know it ourselves. We are not oppressing people. We are not trying to force them. We are not out to to harass or hinder. What we take is good news. The gospel is the best good news the world has ever known. And if we don't believe it, oh, my friend, we must read and study and pray and repent of our faulty mindset. And as we go to people, we share it as good news of great joy, the Bible says. So that is the gospel. Now, there's all kinds of ways we can fill in those four elements. But those elements all have to be there before it's a faithful gospel presentation. So we declare God's universal salvation, but also declare God's personal salvation. Right? What I mean by personal salvation is tell how, how you have been saved by God through faith in Jesus. If you and I, if we have truly been born again, we have a testimony to tell. We have a, a story to tell the nations. We have something to say about what God has done for us through faith. In Jesus. And again, we should all be able to, to tell our testimony of salvation at, a, at the drop of a hat. If you've never really worked through that, a good way to work through it is to think of it in three phases. Right? My life before Jesus. Right? What was going on in your life before you met Jesus? What were you like before you knew Christ? How I came to Jesus. What were the events that led you to Jesus? Did someone take you to church? Did a friend share the gospel? Did you accept an invitation? Did someone give you a Bible and you were reading on your own? What happened that brought you to the place where you understood you needed Jesus? And then my life with Jesus. What has happened in your life since calling on Jesus to save you? How is your life different? How have you experienced Jesus in your life? What has He done in you, through you, and for you? Right? This is an element 
of declaring the gospel, declaring God's salvation, is to tell how God has saved us as individuals. Personal testimonies are powerful. Scripture tells us about a man who was possessed with legions of demons. And after being After coming to Jesus and having the demons cast out of him, the guy wanted to go with Jesus. But Jesus said, no, go and tell your family and friends what great things God has done for you. And at that time, the people of the region begged Jesus to leave. They didn't want him to stay there. So he left. Sometime later, Jesus comes back to that same region and the crowds are flocking to him. What made the difference? Why did those who wanted him to leave Now were they eager to meet him. It was the testimony of the man with legions of demons. Never underestimate the power of your testimony. Of what Jesus has done to make an eternal difference in someone's life. Now, we're to to show forth, to proclaim his salvation. But notice, from day to day, we declare his salvation Always, continually. What God has done for us through Jesus is truly great. And for us is truly good news. Then it's worthy of being continually told. Not once, but over and over and over again. If you go on to verse 3, it says, We're to declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among the people. We're to declare the good news of God's salvation. Among the heathen and his wonders among the people. The picture is of telling God's good news to all people everywhere. Missionary endeavors are literally the response of every worshiper of God. Each and every one of us have a responsibility to labor for the success of missions. This is true whether we're talking about worldwide evangelism or the evangelization of Guyman, Oklahoma. We are all called to be missionaries. We are all called to declare His glory among all unbelievers everywhere. All the nations and all the peoples means that we declare God's good news, God's salvation to all people without regard to their nationality, Without regard to their skin color. Without regard to their social economic status. Without regard to their political party. Without regard to their sexual orientation. And without regard to their gender identification. We are to declare God's greatness to all people everywhere. Day to day. We declare the good news of God's salvation to all people. No matter what. Our worship of God. It must lead to passionate witness about God. And passionate witness about God includes proclaiming the good news of His salvation from day to day. So we declare God's salvation, but we also declare God's uniqueness. In verse 4, it says, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. But we are to declare God's glory because He is great and greatly to be praised. We declare that God is great and greatly to be praised because He alone deserves our worship. There is no other so-called God in the world. 
that deserves our or anyone else's worship. God alone deserves worship. Yahweh alone. Jesus alone deserves worship. No other God deserves any worship because for all the gods of the nations are idols. Right now, the word translated as idols, it carries with it the idea of being weak and worthless because they're nothing. And that's a perfect picture of all other so-called gods in our world. They are weak and they are worthless and they are nothing. The God of Islam is nothing. The God of Mormonism is nothing. The God of Jehovah's Witnesses is nothing. The God of Scientology is nothing. The God of New Age Spiritism is nothing. The God of Buddhism is nothing. Therefore, they do not deserve praise, worship, or devotion from any person anywhere. We declare God's glory because He alone deserves worship. We proclaim the good news of God's salvation to all people everywhere because God deserves their worship. We want all the nations and all the peoples to experience God's salvation so that they will give Him the glory and the praise that He alone deserves. One of the major but forgotten motives for evangelistic mission is God's glory. God is glorified. As we declare his salvation. Our devotion to God as we share it. Glorifies him. As we as people turn to Christ. And the lost are saved. The prodigals are restored. The captives are set free. Broken hearts are healed. Ruptured relationships are restored. God is glorified. God is further glorified when these people who have been changed by Jesus then begin to also declare His glory in their lives and try to share the gospel with others. There are people all around the world who do not worship the one true God, the Lord God of heaven. And He alone deserves their worship. We declare the good news of God's salvation so that they will be saved and give God, the glory He alone deserves. There are people all around Gaiman who do not worship the one true God, the Lord God of heaven. He deserves their worship. So we declare God's glory, the good news of God's salvation, so that they will be saved and they will give God the glory that He alone deserves. In verse 6 it says, Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. The idea of honor and majesty and strength and beauty being before God and in His sanctuary seems to be that these are intrinsic parts of who God is. Wherever God is, there is glory and honor, majesty, strength, and beauty. One paraphrase renders this verse as breathtaking brilliance and awe-inspiring majesty radiate from His presence. His stunning beauty overwhelms all who come before Him. If we were to see God, We would see Him as great and awesome, majestic, beautiful, and absolutely deserving all of our and everyone else's worship. We would be so overwhelmed by the greatness and the glory and the beauty of our God that we could not help but give Him the honor and the praise that He deserved. We would not hesitate to declare His glory and we would never cease to declare His glory. God alone 
is like this. There is none like our God. Our worship of God must lead to passionate witness about God. And passionate witness about God includes declaring His uniqueness. He alone is God. He alone deserves the worship of all peoples. We declare God's salvation. We declare God's uniqueness. And we declare God's worthiness. Since breathtaking brilliance and awe-inspiring majesty radiate from His presence, since His stunning beauty overwhelms all who come before Him, all the peoples of the earth must give God the glory He deserves. Notice the inclusive nature of this call to worship in verses 7 and 8. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering. Come into His courts. It is a call for all the families of all the peoples to declare God's glory. The use of the word peoples in verse 7, it carries back to verse 3 where we declare His glory among the heathen and His wonders among the people. All the nations and all the peoples of the earth are to hear the good news of God's salvation. To embrace the salvation for themselves and then begin to declare God's glory throughout the earth. All peoples of all nations are to declare our God's glory. They are to do this because they embrace Him as their God as well. All people of all nations are to declare God's strength. All people of all nations are to give God the glory He alone deserves. Give Him the glory due His name. Giving God the glory due His name is done more than with just words. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering. Come to His courts. There is to be a genuine devotion to God as seen in the offerings that are freely, joyfully given to Him. The offerings are a testimony, a declaration of the greatness and the worthiness of our God. He is worthy of this kind of devotion. He is worthy of this kind of offering. He is worthy of this kind of sacrifice. God was worthy of that when Psalm 96 was written. And God is worthy of that today. He is worthy of our offerings and worthy of our sacrifices. Now while we do not make animal sacrifices as they did in the days of Psalm 96. We still make sacrifices to declare God's worthiness. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. Which is your reasonable service. Time doesn't permit to go into a long detailed explanation of this. But there's just two parts I want to hit. I want to hit the last first. This is your reasonable service. Giving all of our lives to God. Making a living sacrifice. Which we'll talk about in a second. It is not exceptional Christianity to be a living sacrifice. It is not next level Christianity to make a living sacrifice. To be a living sacrifice. When we look at all that God has done. It is, it is just reasonable. It is just our duty. It's what's expected. It is the natural response 
to a God who is great and awesome and has done so much for us. And the natural response is to be a living sacrifice. Now, on a, we talk about being a living sacrifice. And often it's just kind of this lay yourself on the altar. But what does that look like on a more practical level? And I want to give you some ideas. When we look at Scripture, we find some sacrifices, some offerings that we are to make as New Testament disciples of Jesus. And we don't have time to get into each of them in, in detail. I'm just going to give you the reference. And it's going to be up to you to study it out and to see what, what is your reasonable service. Right? So, a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice makes a sacrifice of praise. Have you ever thought about that? That as we worship, as we sing and declare His glory in song, have you ever thought of that as a sacrifice? I mean, are you putting so much into it in what you're doing that it is a sacrifice to God? A living sacrifice makes a sacrifice of good works. They're just things that we do in this life because our God has saved us and because our God is worthy of these things. A living sacrifice makes financial sacrifices. If I'm to put all that I am on the altar and be a living sacrifice, my pocketbook, it's on there with me. So there are financial sacrifices that disciples make because our God is worthy of that. <clears throat> and then a living sacrifice makes sacrifices to reach others with the gospel. We do things that are unpleasant or difficult or uncomfortable. The goal of seeing other people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Our God is worthy of these sacrifices. He is worthy of these sacrifices and more. And making these sacrifices is one of the ways that we declare God's glory. Now the picture we're given in verse 9 is kind of cool. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. The word that's translated for worship here, it doesn't mean so much to speak forth God's praises as much as it does to simply fall down before Him in awe. It means to bow down before God or, or literally to prostrate ourselves before Him. But it's not done in a, this is the part of the service where I bow down sort of way. This bowing down happens spontaneously as we recognize the greatness, the power, the holiness of our God. We are overwhelmed at who He is. We are overwhelmed at how great He is. And we see that the only reasonable response is to lay before Him. Declare His greatness. And His goodness. The word fear in some translations is, is tremble. I don't have time for this and it's not in my notes. It's just a rabbit trail. The irreverence about God in our day borders on blasphemy to my way of thinking. In the Bible, when people saw God or even were given a glimpse of His glory, He wasn't the big man upstairs. Wasn't J.C. in the house. 
They trembled before the glory and the greatness of God. I think in Revelation. The Apostle John, who was called the beloved disciple. He sees Jesus in a measure of his glory. And he doesn't jump up and grab him and hug him around the neck as his best friend. He trembles and he falls on his face before him. We don't have a kind of reverence for God that would lead us to tremble at his presence, to understand his greatness and glory. Dear friend, we do not understand his greatness and glory. We have made our God far too much like us. When we see God and the beauty of his holiness, we understand his greatness and his power. We will spontaneously, joyfully fall before him in reverence and worship. Our worship of God, it it must lead to passionate witness about God. Part of that is declaring God's worthiness. So we declare God's salvation, declare God's uniqueness, declare God's worthiness, and finally declare God's reign. Verse 10, it says, To say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established and it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Now drop down to verse 13. He cometh. He cometh to judge the world. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with His truth. Part of declaring God's glory is declaring that the Lord reigns. He reigns over all the earth. He is the sovereign ruler of the world. The world and its inhabitants are firmly in God's hand and in God's control. And God's control is firmly established and it shall not be moved. Nothing is ever out of God's control. Not the world situation, not the climate, not the political situation, not the economy, not the circumstances of our lives. Nothing. Because our Lord, our God, reigns. But the emphasis of God's reign here isn't just that it's established in His hand, but of a future judgment. That all of the world will be judged by the Lord who reigns. That because He is Lord, He will judge all people everywhere. And it's, again, this is one of those cutesy sayings in our day. Only God can judge me. And those who can say that without trembling and fear are fools. Because they do not understand the greatness of the God who will judge them. There's two ways that God's judgment is described in this passage. It is God's judgment of evil. But the Lord cometh. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. Evil often abounds in this life. Evil often prevails in this life. Evil often escapes justice in this life. But this life is not all that there is. And while we may not see God's justice meted out, we can rest assured it will be. There will come a time When the wicked are held accountable for their sins and their crimes. Their judge will not be a man. 
the glorious God who reigns. There will be no legal loopholes to take advantage of. No political wrangling to escape. On this day there will be nothing but the pure, righteous judgment of God. One day Jesus will return and He will set right everything that has gone wrong. Not only will God judge evil, but there is judgment, God's judgment of people. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with His truth. And that's, that's important. His truth. Not my truth. Not your truth. Not even their truth. His truth. God's truth is found in His Word and it reveals His Son. God will judge people on the basis of whether or not they have heeded His Word and embraced His Son. The truth of God's Word will reveal the standards of righteousness and the reality of sin in a person's life. It will also reveal Jesus as Savior who died for sin to save us from sin. Did the person heed the Word and embrace the Son? That's judgment. Jesus, Jesus said, those who believe in Him are not condemned, but those who believe not are condemned already. The judgment isn't based upon how hard or easy was your life. What did you do with Jesus? The judgment won't be based on who your parents or your grandparents were. What did you do with Jesus? The judgment won't be based on whether or not you were a nice person, a faithful spouse, a good community member, a Republican or a Democrat. What did you do with Jesus? Those who did not heed the word and embrace the Son will face the sure and severe judgment of the Lord who reigns. The Lord reigns. And so nothing can stop His judgment. The Lord reigns. And so no one can avoid His judgment. The Lord is able to come. And to bring judgment with Him whenever He chooses. Knowing that the Lord reigns. And that He will bring judgment. It moves us as disciples of Jesus to declare God's glory and proclaim the good news of His salvation. Because we want people to be spared from the judgment to come. Paul said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone... Everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. Knowing the reign of God ensures the judgment of God should lead us to plead with people to turn from their sin, to turn to Jesus. 
peoples of the nations of the earth who do not turn to God and worship God through Jesus Christ will face the judgment of God. The people in Gaiman who do not turn to God and worship God through Jesus Christ will face the judgment of God. And the only hope they have is Jesus. But someone must tell them. This is why our worship of God must lead to passionate witness about God. All that happens is I feel good. And it doesn't lead me to care about those out there or do anything different in my life. Our worship is defective and deformed. Worship of the great and the awesome God of the Bible transforms us. Makes us missionaries as our God is a missionary God. And as we witness about God, we declare His reign. He is coming. And He is coming to judge the world. And that includes you. And that includes me. God is going to fulfill Psalm 96. In many ways, God is already fulfilling Psalm 96. God is working through His people who declare His glories to make worshipers of every tribe and nation and tongue on the earth. And my plea to you this morning before we close is this. Don't miss being a part of what God is doing. Be a part of what God is doing on the earth. What God is doing in Gaiman. Be a worshiper of God who passionately witnesses about God. So if you would say you are a worshiper of God, in what ways are you witnessing about God? Are you declaring God's universal salvation through the gospel? Are you declaring God's personal salvation of you? If not, you must seek the Lord in prayer and inscription until a holy fire burns within you, causing you to let your worship of God lead you to passionately witness about God. If you have never personally repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you are not a worshiper of God this morning. And you can only come to God and be a worshiper of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is your greatest need. You must repent. You must turn to God away from your sin. As you turn away from your sin and turn to God, you cry out to Jesus for salvation. You must believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You must believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You must believe that Jesus can and will save you. You must be the one to repent. You must be the one to believe. No one can do that for you. Your salvation, it stands between you and your God. And if you miss the salvation of God, it will not be your parents' fault. It will not be your spouse's fault. It will not be the church's fault. 
Dear friend, it will be your fault. What will you do? The truth from God's word. Will you heed it and embrace Jesus? Or will you reject it today? I urge you to call on Jesus to save you. Let's bow our heads and and close our eyes. We're going to have a few minutes to, to pray right now.